Good morning. I just echo that. I hope you all can make that available to yourself. We're here for a purpose other than what a lot of what we spend our lives doing. We're here for the kingdom of God, for his namesake. Amen. John 7, let's go. I don't have time to take a lot of other introduction. Um, the, the last time we were together, uh, we saw Jesus in John 6. If you remember, he was feeding the 5,000 men, so 20,000 plus, most likely, people. Um, he had to squelch an uprising of the people that wanted to force him to become king. He revealed himself as the bread of life, for which he got tremendous pushback and resistance. Um, he experienced a, a ministry setback. If you recall that as he's explaining this concept of I am the bread that came down from heaven, um, some of the teaching seemed too difficult for the people who were considered his disciples, had been following him around, and it said that many followed him no more. Um, and then chapter 6 ends saying, well, at least the 12 stayed with him, which was a good thing, but even one of them, it says, was a betrayer. So it, it, it left us sort of like, eh. And it's now six months later. Okay, so we're, we're going to pick up our, our study in John, only the seventh chapter, and we're, and we're six months from the last time we talked with him. In John's account, some of the other Gospels fill in some of the things that probably took place during that period of time, but John chose to jump ahead, and we're going to start John 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He wouldn't go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jew, Jewish feast of booze was at hand. Okay? Um, tells us three things by way of introduction. Jesus is in Galilee. All right? He's in Galilee for a reason. He's in Galilee. Now he has not been restricted there. He's, he's been making many trips back and forth. Jerusalem to Galilee to um, Samaria. All these during these six months. So after this, we don't know exactly what this is. But what we do know is during the six months, while he's continuing to, to minister and do the things that, that are necessary in establishing the kingdom of God in the earth, he's continuing to deepen the Jews' resentment of him to the point where he's had to sort of keep himself in Galilee and avoid going to, to Judea until it was a right moment and a right, and a right time because there were death threats against him. There were, there were people who literally wanted him dead in Judea. Um, they, they weren't happy with who he was, what he was doing, and who he claimed to be. They, they, they wanted him dead. I don't know that we can realize the pressure that that must have been. And we also know that it was a Feast of the Tabernacle. The Feast of Booze, Sukkot. It, it was a, the, a fall, the last um, 
festival of the season, of the year. It, it, was, in the, it was in the fall. It was probably late September, mid-October. Um, it was eight days long from Sabbath to Sabbath. And during that time, they would build booze, just straw huts or leans to, either off of their houses or down the streets and throughout the streets of Jerusalem. And it was a reminder of the time that they were wandering in the wilderness. And they lived in these in, in huts and tents. Um, it reminded them of God's provision during that time. And it was also a celebration. It marked a, the end of the harvest season. So it was a time of just celebrating God's goodness and faithfulness for a, a good harvest. It was the last Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus would be a part of. Because it was six months from this time, it would be the Feast of Passover, which means Jesus had six months to live, which means there was six months left on God's time clock of Jesus' time in ministry on earth. And as we go into this chapter, we're going to find that there's, a, there's this pervasive thought, there's this underlying tone that, that if you read the chapter through, you'll just, you can just sense it, and, and it's this concept of like, or idea of, well, who is Jesus? Who, who really, who is he? It, 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 the chapter's filled with conversations about him and conversations with him from all different types of people. There were questions, there were assumptions, there was accusations, there was criticisms, there was rumors, there was false information, there was accurate information. He, there, there, there was all the extreme. He's a prophet. No, he's, he's not a prophet. He's a false prophet. He, he has authority. No, he's possessed by the devil. He, he, he's a Messiah. No, he's leading people astray. And everything in between those extremes, they were talking about who is this Jesus? And tremendous confusion surrounded this controversial rabbi. So by way of title, because you have to give us a message, a title, I'm calling it Following the Real Jesus. All right? We sit here today and we, and we think about the purpose and the mission of Jesus, and it seems so clear. It seems so obvious. And yet in real time, it was missed by most people. It really was missed by, by most, most. Even some of those, like from last week, who considered themselves disciples, missed it to the point that they stopped following him. Um, chapter 7 shows us some things that Jesus doesn't evoke a passive response. He, he doesn't um, elicit from us just some mild consideration. You just can't do it. You can't accept or think about Jesus that way. And it shouldn't be that way in our lives either. John is going to tell us that in, as we look at four different groups who responded in some way, interacted in some way with, with the Messiah, we're going to see that none of them were mild reactions. All of them, if Jesus, what, the claims that he makes, you can't just be meh about that. He's saying some pretty broad, some pretty, pretty broad, big concept things. He's saying some, making some claims about himself that, that you can't just be passive about. You got to do something with it. And, and hopefully as we walk through this chapter, you'll be able to um, glean some things. And, and I hope a little bit of time of uh, self-introspection and investigation into our own journey of, of following Jesus. So let's take a moment to pray. And then we'll get into our text. Father, thank you. You are here. We're confident of that. 
And I'd ask, Lord, that in, in this time now, you would, you would set the table before us. I pray, Lord, as we come to your table, you, you serve what each of us needs. Lord, if there's folks came in today and, and they, they just feel under it, your word says that you prepare a table even in presence of our enemies. So there's victory today. So be with us as we open your word, make it life to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's just start. Um, right at the beginning, we're, we're going to look at the first group of people that we want to look at are his brothers. Okay, and, and the point that we draw out of the text is that following Jesus requires faith over familiarity. Okay, verse number three. So his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Since you can do all these mighty things, let as many people as possible see it. And then verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's an interesting text. It's, it's one of the few places where we get a little glimpse into Jesus' family, his biological, well, not sort of biological, half biological family. Um, Mary and Joseph had kids, okay, after Jesus. They, they had a family. Mark 6.3 tells us that. It, it names four brothers, James, Joseph, Joseph uh, Judas, who we know as Jude, Simon, and says, and sisters. It's plural, so more than one. Um, it, it creates a picture, and you can have sort of fun thinking about it. What would it be like to grow up with Jesus as your elder brother? Could, could be interesting. Um, what's it like to grow up with a sibling who's always right? <laughs> only he really is. <laughs> Some of you had that experience, only this was true. This was real. That, that was always, always did the right things. Always got the best grades at, at Hebrew school. Usually ended up teaching during the day. What do you do growing up with that kind of guy? What do you do growing up where, where you know, he, he won't lie for you just to protect you? You know, who ate all the cookies? Or maybe he'd protect you. He'd just multiply them. He'd just make more. I don't know. What's it like growing up with a parent whose favorite line was, why can't you be more like a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. But in a serious way, they had, this was a family. These were brothers. They grew up together. Jesus, the eldest. So literally, these other brothers have known him their entire life. They've been exposed to him, a part of him, living with him their entire lives. They have, they have suffered loss together. We know that Joseph, their father, passed sometime after Jesus was 12 years old. Somewhere in there, Joseph passed, so they experienced the loss of a parent. They experienced living together now in a, in a single-parent home. Jesus, according to ancient custom, most likely being the eldest, assumed some level of leadership and headship in the home. It was a responsibility of an eldest son when, um, if a father died, that the eldest son now was charged with caring for his mother which helps us and forces us to go to the picture of the cross where Jesus, hanging on the cross, looks at John 
and says, and Mary is there, and he says, behold your mother, and behold your son. And it says that from that moment forward, John took Mary into his house, Jesus fulfilling his role as the eldest son. The brothers show us something interesting, that it's possible to relate to Jesus from a position of familiarity, but without faith. I've found over the years, and I believe it to be true, that some of the hardest people to to lead the Jesus are those who grew up with Jesus. You understand that? I've found that to be true. It's hard for them sometimes to even know that they aren't saved or a part of the family of God because they've grown up knowing Jesus from birth. They stood at an altar and were dedicated to the Lord. They know all the music. They know the protocol. They know the people. They it's, it's just familiar. It's just something that's comfortable to them. And, and from the outside, looking on, everyone even underscores and confirms that reality. There's this, of course they're a Christian. We've watched them grow up here. They, they're in youth group, and then they were serving in different areas of the church. Yeah, they're a great Christian. But maybe never really expressed personal faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It's possible. His brothers were in that situation. Familiar, but no faith. They didn't believe in Jesus. So what they do, because they're brothers, they, that's, that, that didn't slow them down. They still said, well, we can give him advice. And he should listen to us. And they give him this advice. They say, go to Judea. Judea was the center of Judaism. Judea was the hot place. And it was a, it was a, a feast time, which means Jerusalem was bursting at the seams. And they're saying, you ha- you've got to go from Galilee, which is a nothing place, and you've got to get to Jerusalem. You've got to go to Judea. You need a bigger stage. That is what they were telling him, basically. In our appraisal of what you're trying to do, you need a bigger stage. Leave Galilee, go to Judea. Show your disciples, show those who are interested in you. Show your followers, show those who who have leanings in your favor. Show them what you can do. Show them the works that you're doing. You're doing all this great stuff, but it's in Galilee. Go to Jerusalem, show it on a bigger stage, and rally your base. And then they said, you have all this power. These are his brothers. They, they were totally aware of his ministry. They were probably in attendance at some of his services where people were just being healed and delivered and set free and, and leprosy disappearing. They, they had witnessed all. They said, you have this power. Show it to the world. Build a following. Now, that was their advice. And it, and it wasn't extreme. Um, it was logical. It was insightful. It was executable. It was strategic. It, it wasn't sinful advice in any way. In fact, it, was, it, it wasn't even bad advice. It, it, it was probably, in most settings, be considered good advice. 
If Jesus' plan was to go to Jerusalem and open a Chick-fil-A, it was good advice. But the problem is it was faithless advice. There was, it was advice and a way of seeing Jesus without faith in him, without acceptance of who he really was. At the end of the day, it's only faith that establishes a relationship that truly follows Jesus. You can't do it any other way. You, can't, you just can't do it any other way. Only by faith are we in right standing with Jesus. Not by tradition, not by heritage, not by lineage, not by biblical literacy, not by church membership, not by acts of service. All those things aren't wrong. They may just make us familiar with him, though. Those are, those are things that people who are familiar with Jesus can do all on their own. Only faith. Only by putting faith in him does it become Lord. Does it become our Savior. By grace, by grace, we're saved. Through faith, but only by grace. An exercise of faith. Familiarity alone is a deception. And it can keep us from truly following Jesus. But it can make us feel like we are. Second group that it's mentioned in the scripture is, is people or the crowd. Okay? Now, we're not taking the passage, the chapter through passage by passage. Where I'm, I'm pulling out scriptures out of the chapter where these various groups are mentioned. Okay? So if you're trying to be, follow it sequentially, you're, you're going to be very confused. All right, the crowd. The point being, following Jesus requires courage over conformity. Verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 20 says, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Verse 43, so there was division among the people over him, the crowd. Today, the crowd would be the general public. We, we know that phrase, the general public. It's people in an area or a region or a country. Um, this, this was the Feast of the Tabernacle. The, the general public gathered at that time was very broad, very vast, very, very diverse. Broad range of people, ideas, thoughts, backgrounds, all were gathered in this one place, and they would be the crowd. They would be the general public who was there. Can I tell you something? The crowd's a dangerous place to hang out. For a Christian, for a follower of Christ, we can't always avoid it, but we need to be aware of it. The crowd's a dangerous place. And let me just give you a few reasons why. Number one, the crowd is collectively divisive. He's a good man. No, he's leading people astray. The crowd believed both of those extremes. See, every crowd is a collective of smaller crowds. Within every crowd, there's a collective of, of groups, of camps, if you would, of tribes, of parties. Every crowd is just a collective of all these. Think of high school. They're all there, but in their little groupings. 
It happens every place there's any crowd. Any place there's a group of people, we find a way to find our people to the exclusion of people who aren't our people. It's reflexive inside of us. And then these groups within the crowd just by just naturally seem to divide. They find each other and then they separate from one another. Each grouping finding their own identity, their own language, their own style, their own agenda, their own rules, their own talking points, their own causes, their own mindset. They all think alike within that group, within the crowd, and that divides them from one another. And that division isn't always necessarily hostile. It could be passive. It could just be adversarial. It could be, it could be aggressive. But all of them have a us-and-them mentality. An us-against-the-world kind of mentality. They see other groupings within the crowd as opposing sides. Secondly, the crowd is highly susceptible to misinformation. They are. See, there's no agreed standard of truth in a crowd. There's all these other groups who have created their own truth based on their own function and purpose and ideas, their own version of the truth. Which means everything they see and hear is filtered through the mindset of whatever camp they're choosing to be a part of. And that becomes how they live and how they react to whatever's going on. We're we're in a time, and God help us, and I pray you pray for us as a nation, we're in an election cycle. And most people in the crowd, and I guess we could probably say Christians included, have already picked the camp that they're going to follow. It's already predetermined. Which means everything that they take in, all the sights and sounds that concern the campaign, they're going to hear and view filtered through that predetermined position. Based on that group. Based on that group mentality of, of the camp that they're favoring, have already chosen or are a part of. That's what crowds do. They, they create this natural division. Thirdly, the crowd responds to fear over faith. For fear of the Jews, no one spoke of them openly. Pharisees had tremendous influence over the crowd. And these days in our culture, a good resume doesn't count as much as broad influence. We have people who their goal in life is to be an influencer, to to push agenda into the general public. And there's some people who make a whole lot of money because they have a skill and ability to do and understand that psyche and how to make it happen. The Pharisees were an influential group. The Bible would call that the fear of man. The fear of man is a tremendous motivator in the life of a crowd. Fear of man is about fear of rejection, ridicule, embarrassment, being alone. FOMO existed in Jesus' time. Fear of missing out. Needing a place to belong. Boy, if I don't think this way, if I don't go along with that, then they're going to put me on the outside and I don't want to be on the outside. That was the fear that they had of the Jews because the Jews had the authority to kick them out of synagogue, outside the Jewish community. And that was 
a huge deal for them. Fear of man's a terrible addiction. All of us have experienced it. On some level, in some way, we all understand that, the fear of man. It, but, and it's a terrible, terrible addiction. The, the wise man in Proverbs 29 says, the fear of man's a snare. But if you trust in the Lord, you'll be safe. Paul tells the Galatians, he's arguing about his position. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of God. Paul's saying, listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't fear God and fear man at the same time. And you got to choose which camp you're going to be in. You got to choose how you're going to live your life. Finally, the crowd's a counterfeit. And this is perhaps the most dangerous part of the crowd. It's a counterfeit and a substitute for the church. It, it encroaches on our lives and can play that role, can take that role. Because the, the church isn't a crowd. The church is a body. It, it's not disconnected members. It's, it's a body. We're not, and, and as a body... We're not held together by sameness. That's what crowds do. We're held together by oneness. That's what a body is. And Jesus isn't an influencer. He's a savior. There's a difference. And as a savior, he's out for your good, not just your vote. Faith in him. Isn't, isn't a camp that we pick. It's a covenant that we establish. It's a relationship that is deep and goes to every part and fiber of our being. See, Jesus doesn't save crowds. Do you know that? Do you know he didn't come to save crowds? He saves people. One at a time. One-on-one, -on -one, personally. Well, I was in a crowd when I got saved. Yeah, but he saved you. Even if a hundred other people got saved at the same time, it was all the same way, one-on-one. -on -one. Them and God. Jesus doesn't save any other way. See, as Christians, we follow Jesus personally together. We're a body, but everybody has individual members, and he saves us one-on-one. -on -one. And then he doesn't place us in a crowd. He places us in his family, children of God. There's a difference between the crowd and being a Christian. And it's dangerous to follow the crowd when eternity's at stake. Remember, it was the crowd that shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. And a few days later, that same crowd shouted, crucify him. Crucify him. The next group. How's my time? Okay. Let's look at the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, represented in, in the text. We already read verse number one. After this, Jesus went about Galilee. Um, he wouldn't go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. 
Verse 11 says the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And listen, it wasn't out of curiosity. It wasn't out of desire. It was out of intent. They were, they were hunting him down. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled saying, how is it that this man has learning, but he's never studied? I love that. I, I love that. You know, I have, a, I have a phrase I use a lot of times. It's, Sin makes you stupid. Well, the inverse is true. Jesus makes you smart. There are people who have great scholarship behind their name, and they're dumb as a doorknob. There's people who just know the word of God and walk with, with such wisdom in life and can apply it. And, and the people with all the letters behind their names will sit down with these people and just be amazed at what they know and who they are. There's something about this person called Jesus Christ. Verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They, they, I don't know that we can fully appreciate how vehemently they were opposed to Christ. They wanted to, to shut him up as best they could. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go? Jesus has told them that he's going to a place that they, where they won't be able to find him. And he was talking about his, his return to glory. He was talking about his ascension back to the Father. Well, they didn't get it. It went over their heads, of course. So where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, and teach the Greeks? Is he going to leave the, flee the country? Um, just, just at a total loss. And keeping in mind who these people are. This is the Pharisees. These are the scholars among the, above the scholars. Yet, didn't understand who he was. What they teach us is that following Jesus requires a heart of discernment. If we're going to follow Jesus properly, it requires a heart of discernment. The Pharisees are a lesson for us how it's possible to be religious, but not righteous. It's possible to, to live a wholesome life, but not a holy life. It's possible to be doctrinally astute, but spiritually adrift. It's, it's possible. The Pharisees weren't crazy, bizarre, wild people. They would probably fare ver fairly well in the general church today in our setting. They would be well known. They would be considered and seen as sincere, studied, moral, integrous. Their homes were in order. Their finances were in order. They'd be considered pillars of faith. They'd probably be in, in, in many churches, they would be our teachers and our leaders and our elders and our, those who were up in front that we followed after. They put the memory, most if not all, of the Law and the Prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. That was their Bible. And they, they had most of it memorized. They never missed church. They devoted themselves to, to serving the Lord. They understood that the coming of Messiah was the linchpin of their hope and their life's work, that he would be the centerpiece of, of their whole existence and their, their teaching all pointed to that reality. 
They were there and they heard Jesus' teachings. They saw his miracles. They recognized his authority. They saw him raise people from the dead. Jesus stood in front of them and declared, I am the bread of life. These great Bible scholars. And they wanted him dead. They wanted to destroy him. How could that be? How could those two things be true? How could those two things exist at the same time? How could they be so astute, but yet so lost, so, so confused? And we can list a lot of things that maybe contributed to that reality. Jealousy, pride. They want to protect their position. They, they're mad at Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy. Maybe fear, maybe legalism, traditionalism. Um, the list could go on and on, but there's a core virtue that I believe is missing. And it wasn't their devotion, and it wasn't their doctrine, it wasn't their diligence. They excelled. But it was their lack of discernment. They missed Jesus. They couldn't discern who he was. Discernment's not one of the spiritual disciplines and virtues that we hear taught a lot. It's not brought up a lot. But yet it's irreplaceable. If we're going to be followers of Christ... It's irreplaceable in its, in its value and its necessity as we follow Jesus. The Greek word is anacrino. It means to distinguish, to separate out by diligent search and examination. It's the ability to see truth from error, right from wrong, to discern. It's a spiritual activity. All right? Discernment is a spiritual activity. It's not generated from our soul. If we try to generate discernment on a spiritual level out of our soul, that's called witchcraft. James says this, but the wisdom that's from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom that comes from above comes from one place, the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. I will guide you into all truth. Wisdom is the ability to hear and receive spiritual communication and apply it in day-to-day living. That's a spiritual activity. That's not of our flesh. That's not from our soul. It's from the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit working in my spirit to transform so that I think more and more like Jesus. I talk more and more like Jesus. I can understand more and more his thoughts and his ways. There's that inner knowing that we can't know any other way except by the spirit. It's a spiritual activity. It's also a continuing activity. It's pursuing the ways of God, the acts of God, the thoughts of God in all that we do. The apostle Paul prayed for the believers, he said, to to discern what's best until the day of Christ. So it's a continuing activity. It's something you're going to do your entire life. Every day you should be pursuing the Lord because it's in that pursuit that our ability and our level of discernment grows and develops. Because discernment is the fruit of proximity. Talking about following Jesus. The closer we follow, the greatest discernment we're going to find that we have to live this life and to stand in this life. The Bible puts high value on discernment. 
when God told Solomon, called him to be king, and he gives him an offer that, that all of us would love if God would tell us this, but God says to Solomon, blank check, anything you ask. Go ahead, ask. Just ask, and it'll be yours. And, and God gave it wide open. Solomon could have literally asked for everything, anything. 1 Kings 3.9 says, Solomon's response, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who's able to govern your great people? Out of everything he could have asked for, he said, just give me the ability to discern so that I can lead well, so I can serve you well. It's interesting that God honored him for that request, where he gave him everything else, everything else Solomon could have asked for. Give me power, give me authority, give me wealth, give me whatever. He got all of it because he asked for what pleasured God's heart most. He asked for discernment. Paul prayed for the church in Philippians 1.9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Listen, it's, it's hard to stand in life as a Christian, period. And without discernment, it's getting nigh impossible. Without the discernment and working of the Holy Spirit in us. The word of God is the, is the root cause of discernment. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Basically what that verse is saying, you got to know your Bible. You got to know your Bible. Because discernment isn't going to just be this something that swells, wells up inside of you out of nowhere and you just know. It's going to be rooted in the word of God. It's going to be affirmed by the word of God. Many times the discernment that comes up will be the word of God. A, a verse, a passage, a truth that the Holy Spirit has planted inside of you before this that he brings to the surface in the moment. Discernment requires continual growth. Hebrews 4, or 5.14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a, it's a maturation thing. You grow in discernment. You don't have all the discernment you need yet. We grow in this thing. It protects us from worldly confirmation. Romans 12, 2, everyone knows it. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you can discern what the will of God is, what's good, what's acceptable, what's perfect. Has to be discerned by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our natural man's incapable of accepting. The, the, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able. There's no, we have no capacity to discern in our natural being because they're spiritually discerned. It, it's, it's that clear and it's that simple. God's desire for his church. Every one of the seven churches in Revelation has this statement. He who has ear, let him hear. Let him discern what says the Spirit of God to his church. I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I believe we need a revival of discernment today. 
I believe we need a revival of spirit-filled believers who know how to hear and understand the voice of God and apply it in life, who have a discernment of what's right and what's wrong. That's getting very confused today. In fact, right is growing bigger and bigger and things that are wrong is getting smaller and smaller to the point where really it's almost like nothing's wrong except to follow Jesus. We're getting pushed off to this side and we need a church that's willing to discern the voice of God, stand up and say it out loud. Amen? amen. Okay, I wasn't sure you were going to say amen back. I'm glad you did the last group, all right, the last group. There's a group of believers. There's good news in all of this. Some, of the cra- some in the crowd believed. In spite of all the controversy, the, tra- the, the tension, they believed. Verse 31 says, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You know what I love about this passage? Is it's not only a response of, of faith, but it's a reasonable response. We get labeled as being these crazy people. We get labeled that, that Christianity is, is just a, a, an emotional crutch, that Christianity doesn't, have, doesn't make sense, that Christianity is, is just for, is just for cre- crazy. It's a leap into nothingness. That it's, it's just, it's just, if it's faith, it's blind faith. And we are considered by others who aren't believers as unreasonable it just makes no sense. What you believe just makes no sense that, that you would live and act that way. But Hebrews 11 comes along and says, no, faith is substantive. It, it's not a leap into faith. It's not nothingness. We're not believing in something that, that's, that's fantasy. It, there's, it's substantive. Isaiah gives, the Lord gives an invitation. Come, let us reason together. Because if we can reason together, faith will make sense to you. If we can reason together, if you'll consider who I am and what I've done and what I'm offering, you will believe. You will find that faith is the proper response. There's no bait and switch in the Bible. The Bible's really clear. It, it, it doesn't hide things. It doesn't promise all these things and then once you're in the door, oh, by the way. It, it, it doesn't do that. The price of discipleship is spelled out clearly. There's no secrets. There's no hidden agenda. If you read the 11th chapter of, of Hebrews, you'll find out the, the spans of people of faith who some seems like they got everything they wanted and some people died. Horrible deaths. All People of faith. How, how, how do you explain that? Except the Bible includes it. Jesus said, you don't build a tower and you don't go to war without first, what? Counting the cost. Counting the cost. You just don't do it. If you're going to go to lunch today, you don't go to lunch today. If you don't have money, to go to lunch today. You count the cost. And, and the Bible is clear about it. And so some in the crowd reasoned. They had solid reason. They said, when Messiah comes, we, we know the anointed one's coming. When Messiah comes, he can't do anything more than this man is doing. His wisdom, his authority, his power, his compassion, his love, his grace. It, it's got to be him. 
And their faith was reasoned. And then they exercised faith and said, we choose to believe. We choose to make him our Lord, our Messiah, our Savior. They heard all the other camps, all the other conversations, all the other inputs and said, no, this is what we're going to believe. This is what we choose to believe. It just makes sense that he has to be the son of God. My final point. Following Jesus is in response to his invitation. Verse 37, 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I want you to see this picture. Jerusalem's packed. People are, are everywhere. And Jesus is in the temple. He's standing in front of who knows how large of a crowd. Jerusalem is the heart of the nation. The temple is the heart of Jerusalem. And Jesus is standing in, in front of the backdrop of, of all of Jewish history. Israel's whole existence is represented by this temple. 2,000 years since God called Abram out from Ur of the Chaldeans, then Isaac, and then Jacob. God changes his name to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. One of those sons goes into Egypt, and because of that action, God blesses him for a purpose, and that's to save Israel. And Joseph eventually brings his family to Egypt because of famine in the land, and they're settled there, and they prosper, and they grow, and they expand to the point where the new Pharaoh is threatened by them, and now they know bondage, and they know slavery. And then God sends Moses as a deliverer, and the plagues, and the walking out of Egypt by the miraculous power of God. Their wanderings because of disobedience, the rise of, jo of Joshua as a leader, their entrance into the promised land and, and taking that land and setting up the different tribes in the land. Then all of the judges, all of the prophets, all of the kings, including David and, and Solomon, all this, the temple Solomon built, all of it, Jesus stands in front of that day. He's standing in the temple after 400 years of silence. This is new, that God is speaking again. 400 years since Malachi the prophet laid his pen down, and since that time, nothing new from heaven. No fresh word, no fresh revelation, no prophetic voice for 400 years, and then there's a little stirring and we find out in the wilderness this man called of God, the last prophet of the Old Testament, standing and announcing, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Jesus stands in the temple as heaven's representative, and he says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone's dry, if anyone knows about and experiencing dehydration, parchment, 
If anyone's in a time of drought, and he wasn't speaking physically, speaking figuratively about the condition of their heart. See, this feast was like none of the ones that came before. It's a celebration of God's harvest and God's provision for the people. And here's God's provision, the bread of life standing in front of them. It says, come and drink. Come and drink. Jesus offers salvation then and now to all who believe. His invitation is extended 2,000 years later to this place, to this time, to our world, extended to each of us today. And you can hear that in, in your mind. You think, well, but I'm, I'm saved. I am saved. Well, don't tune me out yet. Th this word salvation, it's a big word. It, it's, a, it's a huge word. It's an all-inclusive word. Under the banner of this word salvation includes election, predestination, redemption, propitiation, divine calling, regeneration, reconciliation, forgiveness, adoption, sanctification, ultimate glorification. All under this word we call and banner of salvation. It's a word that is complete and yet continuing all at the same time. Jesus saves us, but then he keeps saving us. Listen, I stand before you today. I'm saved and I know it, but I need saved today. There's areas in my life that still need a little salvation brought to them. So I'm going to challenge you as we close today to respond to Jesus' invitation. If anyone thirsts, I want you to take a moment just with the help of the Holy Spirit, just if, if you want to close your eyes. And ask, name your thirst. That's my challenge. Name your thirst. There could be some here who your thirst is that you're not a Christian. And you want to become a Christian. You, you've played with the idea, or maybe Jesus has always been familiar to you, but you never really said and made that willful choice that I, I commit my life to you. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I'm, I'm, I, I choose to follow and serve you. And align my, my life to being your son, your, your daughter, your disciple. Maybe you need to make that decision. Maybe that's your thirst today. Maybe your thirst today is that you are a Christian, but if, if you were to be honest, there's a distance between you and Jesus. You've been a little maybe careless with some things in your life. And, and there's a distance. There's been another time, other times in your life where you've known you were closer to Jesus than you are today. Maybe that's your thirst today. Or maybe you're here and there's just some part of your life that is dried up. It's the best way to explain it. That's creating a thirst. It's dried up. Your finances, your health, your relationships. Your faith feels dry. You feel like you're in a spiritual drought. Your peace is dried up. Your joy, your hope, your enthusiasm for life has dried up. You, you know, you can also experience dryness when things are going well. You may sit there and say, no, I'm really comfortable right now. But I would give a caution, and without accusation, but ease has a way of making our walk with Jesus less urgent. Ease has a way of, of 
starting to lag behind or walk a little slower in our following him and not even realizing it. When we have ample provision, it can become a mask for spiritual dehydration. We may not even recognize a dryness because we have all the things that we need. And we may need to draw a little closer today. Jesus says, then and now, come and drink and keep drinking. You can't stop drinking. Just like you can't stop taking in water. You can't stop taking in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you as we close today, and I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to be a little bold, but in this place, this is a safe place. There's, there's really no boldness involved, but if you're thirsty today, just stand where you are. So I know to conclude you in my prayer, just, just stand where you are. There's no shame in that. The only shame really would be recognizing that and not standing, not responding, because Jesus is here. And he's saying, I'm here to satisfy thirst. I'm here to draw you closer. I, I, I'm here to, to bring you to a place of following after me in a new way, a fresh way. Not that you haven't been. Listen, I'm standing with you today. I, I am here with you standing. Because there's some parts of my life I need God to water. <laughs> I need Jesus to bring some refreshing. And he will. And the good news is you don't have to look outside yourself to take the drink. Verse 39, with that I'll close. Now this he said about the Spirit. His invitation, he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed him were to, were to receive. For as if yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not let yet glorified. The good news, they had to wait. For that, that river of life, that reservoir of living water. He was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit that he was going to send upon his ascension back to the Father. We don't have to wait. The Holy Spirit is here. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is already resident in you. So the refreshment is there. It just needs to be uncapped. Whatever's hindering it, whatever's in the way, blocking it, whatever is absorbing your energy, your spiritual dynamic, the Holy Spirit's there to reveal and give you a drink. Father, I want to thank you for your word. And I thank you for the sincerity of your people and their tender hearts to hear your word and to respond to it. Lord, I pray, just figuratively, but yet in the spirit, we just take a drink today. We take in the richness of your life that you've given to us. We, we take in the fullness of who you are. You're our provision. You're our sustenance. You are, your presence is ever with us. We take in your mercy and your grace. And Lord, we, we realign our lives. Whatever direction or things we've been doing, Holy Spirit, would you show us the things that are at the source of our thirst? 
those things that maybe cause dryness, would you reveal them to us and would you give us strength to reject them, to, to turn away from them? And would you let the wonderful refreshing of the living water of your life that's in us by your Holy Spirit just flow out from us? Refreshing us and then, and then even beyond that, refreshing to others. Let others get swept up in the current of the flow of your life in us and through us. God, I thank you today for setting your people free. I thank you for drawing all of us closer. Our, our devotion is to follow you closer and closer each and every day. Seal this moment in our hearts by faith. We see it done and we'll walk it out in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. So glad you were here today. Take time to greet one another before you leave.